Hello, 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 and welcome to Killer Casting. I'm your host, Lisa Zambini. I'm a casting director in film, TV, video games, commercials, all kinds of things. And with me to talk about the weird and the wonderful world of True Detective is... Oh, oh, sorry, Lisa. I was a bit distracted there. I was actually resetting my Tinder radius to Fairbanks, Alaska. Hoping, I, I think you can on. get lucky. I think there's one lucky lady who would uh, be in for the laughing. But anyway, yes, it's a pleasure to be here. And here we are. Three did you say your name? Wait, did you say your name? Oh, they know who I am. Um, okay. Ed, Ed Steen from Down Under. And yeah, halfway through the through this, it's bringing new definitions to the phrase limited series. Only three of six. But yeah, it's wow. Hey, before we go any further, speaking of True Detective, Lisa, we've been so busy. We missed a big anniversary. We missed our own 100th episode of the pod. <laughs> I know, right? So the first recap of True Detective was our 100th episode. So Happy birthday to us. So there you go. You know, and let me say a little word about that. So we, crazy kids, we started this podcast with our friend Brian, who sadly has moved to the wilds of Chicago to be Mm. very happy there, tending bar. This is a very different podcast than my other podcast. So I have a true crime podcast that's been on for eight years that is a very corporate podcast. It's on big, huge network. We have Big, huge sponsors and big you can say it. Say it. No, it's just yeah, real it's crime profile. Real profile that it's I on Wondery. On Wondery, uh, I do it with it's Jim Smash. With Laura Richards, we've been doing it for eight years. And we have super big deliverables every week. We have to produce at least one or two episodes. We're contractually bound, blah, blah, blah. We have to look at the numbers. We have to chase certain headlines to keep relevant. All of that pressure. And when you start your own podcast that's just you and your things that you're passionate about, things you want to talk about, I don't, I'm my own boss. I don't, if I don't want to record a given week or two weeks or two months, that's my prerogative. And we've had different sponsors come to ask us to do certain things that I have declined because like, I can't have another pressure on my, my, my plate. Like this has to be Mm. 100% love and Yep. What I want to talk about. If I want to talk about this show, that's what I'm talking about. It's not for everybody. It's not, we're not, it's not like network TV where we were constantly chasing this, the, as big an audience as possible. Like we just want the people who get this and who want to talk about wardrobe and wallpaper and music and all the things that you're so good at. When we've had like one bad review that it's like, why do they cover every single scene? It's like, dude, this is a recap podcast. It's like, <laughs> yeah. if you like recap podcasts like I do, like I listen to recap podcasts of things, I want people to talk about every single scene because I want to relive the scene through people like me who are fucking obsessing about it. So Perfect. anyway, yes, happy anniversary. And thank you for those who have been tuning in to us from the beginning. And because we've had so much more output lately, we've had a real influx of downloads and listeners. And just a little FYI, if you are listening we have way more listeners than we have reviews at the moment. So if you can just take a quick little mm. second, just scroll down in your app and leave us a five-star review. Leave us what you like about the pod. We'd like to see us do more of, but leaving that feedback really helps other people find the show. It does. And yeah, and by all means, give us suggestions because as busy as Lisa and I are with tracking what's happening in film and television, we unavoidably miss things. And it's it's you find out... People say to you, oh, by the way, have you seen X, Y, or Z? And you're like, no. And then when you look at it, you wonder how the heck you ever didn't come across it because it's amazing. 
On that note, I'd like to say thank you to a couple of people. Kim Kaling, who via Apple Podcasts said, I always check in on the Killer Casting Podcast to see which series Lisa and Dean are covering. The shows they discuss are guaranteed gems to watch and their breakdowns are so insightful. I also love the discussions on the Oscars. Lisa, easy. And interviews with industry professionals. Well done, Lisa and Dean. Thank you, Kim, for that. And then we had Joseph Kibler, who was paying forward or back to love. I don't know. He was one of our guests just on a recent episode and said, um, Killer Casting is a podcast that I would recommend to all those in the industry and outside of it. Exclamation mark even. So he must mean it. It's such a thoughtful examination and a dissection into the world of film and TV and all things entertainment. Well, that pretty much encapsulates uh, what we want to do. It's yeah, so thank nice. you guys. Yeah, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes we're covering a show. The nice thing is there are so many times that Dean will see something that I can't access because he's in Australia and I'm here and vice versa, or we're just not into the same thing or it comes and goes. But luckily with Fargo and now with True Detective, we're kind of, we're in a group. Mm. That's great. But then we also do things like we interviewed an intimacy coordinator a couple years back. We interviewed the dialect coach for Mayor of Easttown. We try to do things that we're passionate about and hopefully you'll come along with us for that journey. I always say that podcasting is so intimate because we're in your earballs when you're in the bathroom and when you're driving and when you're with your kids and with your own. And so it's really intimate. And I have podcasts that I listen to, Dean. I listen to a podcast that's just about snack food. I mean, it's it's very niche. Or I listen to entertainment pods, but I also listen to technology pods. Like, it's just like you can just be with your people. Yeah, it's a tribe. Speaking of tribes, Lisa, says Dean yeah. in a segue, we have actually started a little discussion group on Facebook specifically for True Detective. Mm-hmm. So I'll put the link in the show notes, but if you just search on Facebook, Just go True Detective Fans. You will find there is an official True Detective page, but the page, the difference between pages and groups is that pages, you can't, as a listener fan, you can't just create a a post to say, hey, I noticed this. You can only respond to things that are put up by the official owner Mm. of the page. This Mm. one's a group. So if you have noticed a connection or want to make a point about something, just jump in there and to illustrate the the value of it, I have a mea culpa to make, to say, to admit, whatever the word is there. I want to thank uh, Cara Brown from Russiaville, Indiana. I have no idea where That's, that is on the map, dude. Oh, I know. It's like of nowhere. Indiana's kind of somewhere in the middle, isn't it? It's between the left and the right, but Russiaville, it's like one of those towns in, in the US that you have, like you have Paris, Texas, famously. Mm. You have, I come from Melbourne in, in Australia, Victoria, but there's a Melbourne, Florida. Yes, you know, I've got, been to Melbourne, Florida. Yes. Okay. All right. I'm guessing it's not a center of, I don't know, the art you know, let All Melbournes are created, though. <laughs> Let's just keep it in that. Okay? Right, in right. Anyway, Cara pulled me up on the Facebook group because I mentioned that in the previous episode when Navarro was interviewing Chuck Mosley, which was the guy from the bar, and he said, oh, my cousin sold a trailer, his trailer, to Clark, the scientist, and that was where he had his assignations with Annie Kate. And I said, oh, his cousin was Rust Cole. Now, I completely misconstrued that, and Cara pulled me up on it, and when I looked at it again, I realized that his cousin that he was talking about was actually Travis Cole, the father of Rust, Mm -hmm. and not Rust himself. I think I said that in the pod last week. I apologize for misleading you folks. And thank you, Cara, 
for correcting me on that one. Good work. That's wonderful. You have that group. I have not looked at that group, but you guys are grokking it hard. And I love that. So yeah, that's some yay. good insights. It's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of how you and I met, Dane. People, I know we're taking this mm. really long introduction, but so what? It's our podcast. So we met because you were a fan of the true crime podcast that I do called Real Crime Promo. And we had a lot of great threads, a lot of great discussions of the cases that we covered. And thing, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the one who kind of pointed out, like, you guys, your first four cases were all about blonde white women. I think you need to maybe start being a little bit more inclusive of your cases, which of course, we had a huge list of cases we were going to get to, but it's just so happened that we did some very famous cases like Nicole Brown Simpson and um, Teresa Holbach. Oh, Teresa, she was not blonde, but the vict- mm. it just so happened that the top of line cases, the top of our mind cases at the time were in the zeitgeist were true. They were all white victims who deserved their voices to be heard and their cases to be covered, but so does everybody else. And so mm-hmm. that really, you know, we really were like, we kind of had to gut check, like, okay, we need to make sure that we're representing so many more people. And we have gone on to represent, oh my gosh, we've talked to so many, the Emergent and Missing Indigenous People's Coalition. We had so many more people on. But anyway, so you were a fan of that podcast and you helped me with the book club. And that's really how we started getting to know each other. That was yeah. it. That was the big bang of of killer, killer casting. So. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. Let's now, get on to the show. Let's get on to the well, show. Well, yeah, as a segue, Lisa, and into the show we go, it's, I thought about episode three, it was good that from the opening scene that we started to see Annie Kay not in flashback or not as a murder victim, but as a real person. Yeah. So we open with the scene where Navarro turns up at Annie Kay's house. She's there to arrest her, ostensibly for trespassing or damage to property or something to do with the mine. But uh, she hears screams in from inside the house. So she pulls a weapon and makes her way into the house. And of course, we find that there's Annie Kay performing her duties as a midwife. But I just thought it was great that we got a slice of life of mm-hmm. Annie Kay when she was alive as a real person, and not only as a real person, but, you know, doing really good work. And you could see how affected Eve, uh, as in short for Evangeline Navarro, how affected she was by that. And she was sort of taken aback, polstering a weapon, and ended up helping. And it was sort of like a bit of an awakening moment for Eve. And it goes to explain it also why maybe later on that she was so upset about Annie's death and the nature of it because she'd seen the human side of Annie. That's what I took away yeah, from Yeah, I think that's true. I think that we really, they really demonstrate what is the imprint on this woman, on Navarro. And that's that their first meeting being that of a birth, of a very kind of scary birth. And it strikes me that, you know, that there are all women, there are all um, Mm. cis women in this scene and indigenous women. It's a very powerful women's circle of bringing forth life and bringing forth the birth of a child and all the fear and the excitement that goes into it. And that the very next scene after this is all dudes getting their guns on and getting ready to just grow it up and go find this missing scientist. But yeah, I thought that I loved how they did this flashback. I immediately knew it was a flashback because she introduces herself as AF, what is it? AFB? Yeah, she's a a police officer, not a trooper. So it's clearly before she's been sent down to troopers by, and we learned in three, because it was unclear whether it was Liz that sent her down or whether Hank sent her down, but it was Hank that sent her down to troopers, but probably on the instructions of Liz. Yeah, I, I clocked that too. There's a lot of things that I clocked a lot. There was a lot more clarity in this episode. And just to talk about the episode in general, 
There was a lot, there was flashing back to learning about the past in order to solve the present, which I thought was really interesting. But, um, and I loved how they established in this beginning of this episode, this circle of indigenous women that we're going to see come back and be echoed back. And they're featured extras basically, but they don't even need lines because their presence is just so powerful. At least to me, it was. And uh, the Annie Kay actresses is phenomenal. Yeah. What's interesting about this, just it's, not necessarily a massive plot point, but a million connections, as all listeners do by now. So they go off to find this missing maintenance man, I think he is from Salal, whose name was Oliver Tagak. Now, he beat it from Salal before everything went down in whatever happened that night with all the scientists. And uh, before, he left before Annie Kay was murdered, right? I think so, yes. So but, he's been gone for years and years. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, no, that's right. He disappeared. Yeah, you're quite right. Sorry, he disappeared before that happened. But so he's been living out on the on the tundra with this very sort of windswept and rough living community. But his character's name is Oliver Tagak, and I noticed looking at the IMDb that one of the doulas that's there in that scene with Annie Kay, her real name, her real last name is Tagak. I don't know whether Tagak is equal to Smith in terms of the local community or not? Or is this a coincidence or is it an Easter egg at some point? I don't know, but we shall see. And I just want to call out, I mean, so the actress who's playing Annie Kay is Nivy Pedersen, who is just a beautiful, beautiful presence in this show. And it's hard when you talk about a character for a really long time over an extended series of episodes as being dead and you only see photos of her. When you finally meet her, it's it has to pay off. And I think it definitely, this performance definitely is. I think we're going to see more of Annie Kay, right? Because she's so central to the series. It'd be hard to believe that they're just going to make this a police procedural without filling in some of the backstory, like what's going on with her and Clark? What happens to her as a result of the final scene, which we'll come to? Was what Does she die in, in, in that final scene where she's screaming in the ice cave or whatever wherever she is? She's terrified. Is that where she dies? And then her body is later transported. The wounds that she sustains, did that happen when she was down underground in the ice? And I'm also curious, Navarro at one point, I think it was in episode one, she tells Liz that you didn't see what I saw. She was kicked and her teeth were broken and all her bones were broken after she was dead. I'm wondering if, in fact, we'll find out whether that's something that did happen. Was that by a group of angry miners, townspeople? Or was it the fact that maybe the forensics in Ennis is not particularly world-class and maybe they missed the fact that they weren't post-mortem? I don't know. It's just like there's a whole bunch of things left open as a result of that. So I thought that the opening scene was interesting. As you said, it's this community of local women and their spirituality is obviously very strong. The chanting and everything that's going on with the birth is echoed later on. We'll come to this, but with the scene about the stillbirth and Danvers goes along to that and she is clearly very affected by that, which calls into question, is she remembering her own son, Holden, who appears to be dead as far as we can tell? But it was like a nice little bookends because that that scene with the stillbirth wasn't at the end, but it was an echo of the opening scene. And yeah, I you definitely, it's well, definitely a well shout written. out when the young woman who's just lost her baby makes eye contact with Danvers. Of course, there is that connection. There is that callback. And it's such a complex, I don't really know what they're getting at with this and we'll find out more, but, you know, Danvers has such a complex relationship with the indigenous people because 
she it feels you know, she felt quite comfortable going into that mourning circle. Mm. And I mean, the grief circle that she entered where the women, the same women were there for the birth who are, were there for that death. And they were kind of doing that Irish, almost like an Irish keening, you know, mm. that, that grief wail in their own way, in their own language, in their own culture. And Danvers seemed quite comfortable just letting herself in, sitting there and being present for that ritual of grief. So she's okay doing that, but she is so biased or angry. She has this angry streak in her about her stepdaughter painting her face like Mm. her tribe. And there's something about, you can't quite tell, is this racism or is this like, I can't quite put my finger on it because it seems like she's part of the community. You know, she's protecting this community and she's part of the community, but there's something that is like sticking her about it. I'm not quite sure what she's blaming them for. Well, that scene where she drags Lee or Leah, L-E-A-H, her her stepdaughter, into the bathroom and forces her to wipe that stuff off. That was brutal. And I thought that she was just going to refuse to do it. I thought she was just going to tell Danvers to fuck off because she's old enough to do that. But she did acquiesce. But yeah, this antipathy that Liz has for her stepdaughter's connection with her, her heritage is it as simple as she saw what happened to Annie Kay and she sees what happens to other Indigenous in the town that protest and stand up against the mine? Is she just scared that something will happen to her stepdaughter? I don't know. Or is there something else going on? I suspect there's something else going on, but I don't know. I thought you were going to help hey, me. Hey, I'm changing. Have you been hanging out with those people that are vandalizing the mine? No. Are you insane? Do you know what happens to those people? I'm not insane. I just fucking care about this place, all right? I don't know what you want from me. I want you to fucking care. I do care. Bullshit. I told you to wipe that shit off your face. Come on. Do you know Aviat Carter's baby was stillborn today? Sure as hell didn't care for them, did you? That shit's coming off. Come on, stop. Let go. Off and wipe it off. No! Now. Now! I'm just loving Jodie Foster in this role so much, and I feel like it's probably because we watched True Detective Detective right after Fargo that I'm getting, Mm. like, Lorraine parallels to Jodie Foster's Danvers Mm -hmm. character, like these really tough women who just brook no fools. Mm-hmm. And just have their own way, their own wisdom, and their own kind of way of wrapping the world around their fingers. Well, yeah, but she, I think Danvers is less assured and less of a superpower, if you will, than Jennifer Jason Lee was in Fargo. For instance, it's not by accident that we're seeing, especially in episode three, but two as well, where we're finding out that her sexual behavior, like the fact that she jokes about being on Tinder, I, I don't fuck where I eat or whatever she says, I don't shit where I eat. But the fact that she's slept with the geography teacher, Kate McKittrick's husband, she's sleeping with her boss. Now, that's not a judgment in any way, but they've made her to be the most sexually active person in the series. And I'm wondering about that sort of nexus between sex and death and the fact that she's suffered the death of, I assume, we assume, of her son and her husband. You know that weird sort of trope about like wedding sex, right? you got births, weddings, and deaths, funerals, and they're all major points in life. And so this whole thing about people that go to weddings and feel like, okay, it's time to have sex because we've got to celebrate this sort of 
point in someone's life or our lives or whatever. And I'm wondering if this thing, the way that she behaves with her sexual activity, is she repudiating the death unconsciously? She's trying to mimic the act of creating life because she's had to deal with so much trauma. Maybe well, I'm I think a lot of people deal with grief by having sex. I think that is also a trope that, that you, you yeah. kind of pluck the grief away in a way. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you never get close. And I lo- what I love it about, again, there are parallels between sorry, Navarro and Danvers in this way, in that if you look at the scene with Kavik, where Navarro is in the little fish shack with him, he doesn't want sex from her. He wants intimacy, mm. right? He mm-hmm. wants intimacy by asking her about herself. And she doesn't want to give him that intimacy <laughs> in the same way that Danvers no. does. Also doesn't want intimacy with any of her fuck buddies. That is a boundary that they both have. I want to just flash on, just yeah. yeah, sorry, just on that topic. I think it's interesting that they've made a bit of a thing here of secret relationships, right? There's Danvers and Navarro wondering why Annie and Clark had to have this, in inverted commas, secret relationship. And yet you've got Liz, who's having a, she thought, a secret relationship with her boss, Connolly. But as Navarro squares her up at the police station, like everybody knows that you're fucking. She's had sex with the geography teacher and with McKittrick's husband. But again, everybody knows because she even says, well, maybe it's because she doesn't like me because I was fucking her husband. But then you've got Navarro and Kavik and Navarro's doing that on the down low. You've no, got Raymond. I don't know. Ra- They're not, it's not so much on the down low because well, Danvers says, are you still, you know, nah, yeah. not with that dog trainer? Whatever yeah, okay, maybe, yeah. But, but yeah, Raymond and Annie certainly. And I suspect, I doubt that Hank is broadcasting the fact that he's got this Russian bride Alina on the line. I think that's probably only between him and Peter. But anyway, the re- but then you think about Ennis, like how big could the town be and what options do you have for relationships and sex? It's like, but yeah, I think a lot of people have those secrets. It sounds like the hairstylist having, she had yeah. her boyfriend. So it is interesting. These towns have their secrets, which makes them fascinating to be in. Not to mention that Hank insinuates on the ice that Peter and Liz are having sex, right? When she throws the coffee in his face because yeah. The because Mrs. he calls Robinson. her Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. And I what a great line there where Peter just looks after Hank stalks off. Peter just looks at Liz and goes, Who's Mrs. Robinson? I know that kills me. It's like we're getting to the point where those references are not even, I'm sure a lot of the audience doesn't even know what that means. But anyway, so there is a new mystery that is revealed. And I love this. Maybe they did it in season one. I don't know. Where we we figure out what the beef is, kind of the real beef between Navarro and Danvers. Now, I missed this in the first two episodes. I thought that their conflict was about Annie Kay for some reason. I thought that's what kind of broke them up professionally. But apparently it's not. It's this Wheeler murder-suicide where this complete asshole murders his girlfriend, his long-suffering, abused, intimate partner, and then ends his life. However, when we actually see the flashback, we see that is not really what happened, that there indeed was a dead woman on the floor, and it looks like that her intimate partner was responsible. But he's very much alive when Navarro and Danvers burst in. But when Danvers tells Peter about the story, she says that he had killed himself. So we know he's dead. We don't know which of, we don't know how he came to be dead, which of them was responsible for that. And I love that. I love that we have a new mystery and we have an unreliable narrator on what Mm. the truth is. And there is still a big secret between them. 
And even later, it's like everybody is lying to each other. Peter is lying to Nova, uh, Danvers about why his face is bruised, and she's yep. not buying that. No, no, and no. then <laughs> he asks his father, hey, what happened between Navarro and Danvers to break them up? And his father says, no, I don't. But it looks like he does know. It mm. looks like oh, he yeah. knows. Yeah. And I don't know. I just feel like everybody is ha- plays their cards. Yeah. And in fact, I think when you look at the shit that Hank gets away with uh, with Liz, like she would normally stomp on him, right? He refuses to hand over the case file of Annie Kay. He denies he even had it. She said, don't bring your redneck friends into this manhunt for Clark. He does. One of them grabs the chainsaw and is trying to chainsaw the guys out of the, out of the uh, corpsicle when it was found on the ice. It's mayhem. And it's like, why does she put up with this? And I think that she knows that if she pushes Hank too far, maybe Hank will tell Connolly, what actually happened in that hut when they get there with Wheeler? Because I suspect that the way that she told Peter in that room when she says, okay, you get one bedtime story, close the door. And mm-hmm. she tells him, and she mentions he was a bad bastard, really bad. So she knew how bad he was. She knew that he had co opted this 18 year old girl and killed her. And there's in the trailer, you can see that when he turns around, and by the way, he is whistling. Do you know what song he was whistling? Uh-uh. Twist and Shout. Oh, you're kidding. No. Oh, so funny. So then she sort of drops her gun and she almost is like resigned to something. And I suspect, considering what a straight sort of shooter, pardon the pun, Navarro is and why she got punted, I wonder if it was Liz who executed Wheeler and then staged it to look like a suicide. And then Navarro had to go along with that on the official version. And that's what created the tension because that exactly mimics season one where Cole and Marty are arresting the do, I think it is. And Marty just walks up and stone cold shoots him in the head. He's on his knees, just caps him from the back. And you see Russ turns around like, what the fuck? And then you flash forward to the interview where they're being asked about what happened back in the day and they're having to cover up for what they really did. Now, there's a scene in the trailer where Liz is being interviewed by seeming, I think it's Connolly and somebody else, and I wonder if it's going to be revealed that that's another little nod to season one. I so it is a callback. So this, I so think this, so. Yeah. yeah, I loved yeah. it. I just love that storytelling and that we have to wonder what really happened. I love this peek into their history. And by the way, we have excellent parka play in this episode. Excellent parkas, excellent sweaters, <laughs> and an amazing guest appearance by some wool socks that I was absolutely coveting. If you notice that Danvers was in her socks when they were doing oh, their I little didn't. stuff. So but- in most shows, the, the detectives are kind of solving the case on a board on a on a big pinup board with the case everywhere mm. but these they're in they've made this almost like a ritual circle of all the evidence and all the pictures mm. and they're kind of padding around this circle and they were both in their socks and i just i thought that was really cool but it also struck me that they sort of painted themselves into a corner so first they arrange all the photographs and i looked at it going first it was in a square and i'm going you couldn't step over those without You'd have to step on the photographs. Why have they done that? It's obviously a concoction. And then it cuts away and then it cuts back. And now they're arranged like around a clock face in a circle. But again, you couldn't get out of there without standing on them. And I went, that's a little bit weird. But So we haven't acknowledged that a big 
thing in this episode is Danvers agreeing and asking for Navarro to come onto this case to help Correct. with the case. So that seems like a really big event. And, and she's like, it's just temporary. It's just for this. And I mean, you know, you're in the hands of a really great storyteller when you're like rooting for these two to be friends and to connect mm. and to like hug it out. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that is a, a showrunner or a storyteller that's really just working your best buttons. Before we skip over it, I just wanted to say that it's a, sort of a nothing scene where after the childbirth scene at the very start of the episode, there's a short scene where Hank and his redneck buddies are out on the ice and they're trying to go get, they're trying to find Clark. Now, one of the guys whose name is Paulie turns up in a four-wheel drive and he grabs a backpack and jumps out of the car. I and know what you're going to say. I know. I, no, Nindia, I know that you know. <laughs> what goes spilling out all over the snow but a whole bunch of fucking oranges? And now, it would have to be the least likely food to be found in the tundra of Alaska, yeah. right? There's like and $50 so, oranges or something. Yeah. And so, yes, so air freighted in at great expense to the management. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes, folks, to a little bit of a, a breakdown on some film. I forget what it was, but it's a film sort of fan site and talking about how oranges have represented death. I think it was started in The Godfather, but it was mm -hmm. certainly echoed in Fargo Series 4 at the very end when, if you haven't seen it, I won't spoil, but there's a certain character who ends up dead. And as they're dying, falls over and the paper bag of shopping falls over and out rolls some oranges. And of course, we have Navarro later on when she's out on the ice and walking away from Kavik's ice fishing hut. She sees somebody and falls over. No, just before she sees that person, she has an orange and she throws it out into the dark and the snow. And then all of a sudden, somehow it comes rolling back gently. Mm -hmm. So what's yeah. going on with that? Oranges. Issa Lopez is getting her sort of supernatural thing on. She well has several well. supernatural references in here. And I would say this would be a perfect episode, except for the end, which has one reference that I really could have done without. But we'll talk about that when we get to the end. Okay. So let's see anything in here that I have missed. Oh, they're chipping away at this case as the ice is melting. And they go to see this hairstylist who knew Annie Kay and kind of connects the dots about how Annie Kay met the scientist in the first place and all that stuff. I have to shout out the couch in this scene, this pink leather, very sad looking late 80s, early 90s couch is a masterpiece. It's like salmon. Isn't that color called like, salmon? At least in the light, it looks salmon and it looks yeah. like it squeaks when you sit on it and mm -hmm. your, your butt would stick to it if you yeah. were in shorts or whatever. Love it. I love it. And I yeah. love it. Just had that whole set of she's a hairstylist who kind of works out of her home. And so her home is all cluttered with all the kids stuff. And I just it just I could it was sticky. It was just like a very sticky surface of a set. Again, it's just yeah. incredible. It's very hard to make something look so effortlessly lived in. Yeah. The thing I took away from this scene was that, and as they were looking at the, earlier on when Eve and Liz are looking at the photos of Clark and Annie, that they look genuinely happy. Like they, they, look, they yeah. look in love, right? Yeah. So even though the guy who was the delivery guy who turns up and said, you know, Clark was walking around naked and everyone was ignoring him. And the hairdresser, Susan, says to... Uh, Navarro and Liz. Look, he was a little bit weird, but she confirms that he was besotted by her, right? So it's hard to see him killing her for some reason. And 
I wonder if his weirdness and the fact that he's the only one of them who escaped censure, if you will, right? They all died apart uh-huh. from Lund, who's now dead, presumably, after the end of this episode. But he's the only one that sort of, quote, got away. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm sure it's going to have play a part somewhere. And the other thing too, that I noticed one of the tech supers came up and it said, sixth day of night. And it's like, oh yeah, because the whole thing's bloody set at night. You wouldn't even know whether it you was You don't know when set. people are waking up and having breakfast. Yeah, or when and there's yeah, no sunrise, there's no yeah. breakfast. It's like, so it was, I think it was something that went, oh, we really need to put the signpost into these seri- episodes so that we can let people know it's been six days because you just wouldn't know otherwise. So I thought that was cool. Something occurred to me in the scene where Navarro goes to find her sister and her sister is its just an incredible set piece where it looks like this beached boat, this old beached boat, but it's in the middle of this ice field, which I don't know if in warmer climates it's water there. I don't know what it is, but her sister is just sitting out in the middle of nowhere on this boat and she finds her. And just the lighting, like what it takes mm. to light a scene like that where there's no light around. So you, you have to think about what is the practical light that would be there? So it's the moonlight, you know, sh- shining, glistening on the snow. And you kind of have to replicate that in a real way. And then the flashlight, she's got a huge mag flashlight that she kind of props up on the bow of the boat. And that's kind of shining and illuminating them. But I think that it's really hard because you don't want it to be a fake looking light the way that you you see sometimes. And then the lighting I was noticing in the town is that flat kind of mm. the street lights that, that yep. is reflecting off the cold, hard snow. And I just think the how you light night it, and realistically and still keep it atmospheric, but still you can see people. I mean, very famously in House of Dragon, it, that was such a darkly lit show. People were complaining, like, I can't see Mm -hmm. what dragon is killing which person. But because it was so dark and anyway, I just I was Mm. just marveling at the blueness of the light and the luminousness of naturalness of the light. It's funny you mentioned boat because there's another scene. It might be the one with Hank and all of his rednecks or it might be another one. But the camera is tracking. I forget who it is in the foreground, but in the background you can see a whole bunch of like trawlers that are burst up. And I'm like, oh, so there's a coast here at Ennis. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know whether it's an ocean coast or whether it's a big lake like Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, like something, whatever. But in Alaska, I don't know because Ennis is a fictional town. But I didn't picture it being coastal. I just imagined it being out in the middle of nowhere. Like, as I say, it's a pretty close to the Arctic Circle. but What did you make of this magical realism moment where Navarro slips on the ice, smacks her head? She she sees a vision on the ice. She thinks she sees a little child running. It took me a little moment. So when she falls over on the ice, they instantly flash and you can clearly see she's in a different place. And it took me the second watch to realize it's the same landscape as when she flashed back to her army buddy in uh, really? I Afghanistan. I thought it was the same oh, yeah. place, Dean. I think it's the same place, but like the earth is now uninhabitable and this is what happens to that place when like global warming completely takes over and sure. the ice cap melts. That's what okay. I took. That's the, that's what's coming. I'm really feeling this is an environmental horror. Which oh yeah, there's elements I've, of that, I've no doubt. I've done before and that's what's coming. She's awake and the apocalypse of the planet is kind of coming. That's what I took it to mean, but Okay. Yeah. On the second viewing, it looked to be the same sort of orangey desert. And in the background, I had to pause it and look and 
go backwards and forwards. And it looked like it was the ruin of a, in the army, a convoy. So it looked oh, like a convoy. There, I thought there it was, was a, kind a, of a shack. I thought it was no, just like no, the remnants of no. There was, okay, a, then I there was a truck tipped over on its left side. Oh, Sorry, on, okay. on its right side. We're looking at the undercarriage of a pretty big truck. And then there's this other detritus behind it. And I, it's a very short scene, but I just took that to be her going back there. And then, of course, when she saw it, she's still out, but we see what we assume to be Holden's hand because it looks the mm-hmm. same as when he put his hand on the shoulder of Liz when she was in bed. And he says to her something about... He says, tell mommy. Yeah, that- and then she's back to reality. And because at this point we don't know whether... These visions that people are seeing, like Rose seeing a Travis and Navarro seeing or having this thing, and Liz supposedly feeling and hearing Holden, are they really supernatural elements? Or are they, will it be that, as Liz says to Navarro in the car in this episode, there's a logical explanation for all of this? So is it going to be logical or is there going to be supernatural? Judging I mean, by Issa's background, I got, it's got to be supernatural. It has to be. Well, it could be a little bit of both. But I mean, is it? It's something has to be connected to that's coming out of the pipes in the water. Like, is this something in the water causing people to, yep, to lose their minds? Are they being poisoned somehow or something? They're being, something's being extracted deep in the earth and it's wrecking havoc on people's brains or I don't know, but it, I'm here for it for the journey. After that scene that we just, there's an extended scene on the ice rink. So Peter's back on his babysitting role on the uh, uh, corpse which is slowly defrosting. And then before Liz gets there, Hank comes in and he gives a sort of him trying to make up for hitting Peter. He gives Peter his old pair of skates and says, hey, one day, pretty soon Darwin's going to be able to skate. Now, something that we didn't cover was back in, episode two, I think it was, when Hank's at the ice skating rink and he walks past Kate McKittrick and she's quite friendly to him. She calls him Henry, which mm-hmm. is the formal version of Hank. Mm-hmm. And she sort of, she says, oh, you should get Peter to give my son ice skating lessons. It says something about uh, on patrolman's wages, he could use the extra money. That struck me straight away as her trying to schmooze Hank and keep him on side by helping out Peter. And if Hank has had something to do with covering up or involved with Annie's murder, if that's the case, and it was by mine people, if that's the case, then that would make total sense. So anyway, he comes out and he gives Peter the skates and he tries to kind of make up for the fact that he belted Peter. But then Navarro and Liz turn up and Navarro gets right up in his grill about hiding the fact that Hank had not logged and recorded the fact that Susan, the hairdresser, had called in and and given this information that Hank buried. So that was a bit of a a bit of a, a spark there. So it's like, yeah, there's just something not absolutely not right with Hank whatsoever. Like just not. Yeah. I'm just questioning this whole Hank's whole investigative strategy where he's out there and he's doing this manhunt for the missing scientists. But it doesn't seem like they're really investigating. Like what does he think? He thinks this one man somehow mm did this to all of these men? I mean, how would that be possible? How did how did one man do all of this to simultaneously to five or however many other scientists at the same time? It's like, there's not really, like, why isn't he being investigated as like a missing person? Is he out there on the ice wandering around lost? I mean, it's like it's this rush to blaming one killer that could have possibly pulled this off. It just seems so 
intellectually not stimulating to, to do that. But then we well, have- he even says when, when he's briefing his rednecks to go find him, he said that the suspect is armed and dangerous, intimating that these guys who were already trigger happy would shoot him on sight. So is he trying to bury, pardon the pun, is he trying to cover up what he suspects or knows that, that Clark knows about Annie's death? I don't know, but yeah, he's not looking good. At the same time, it would be so obvious for him to be the bad guy. He's been wrong since episode one. So it yeah. would be pretty lineal for him to end up being involved and, and as a bad guy. So I sort of, everything points to him being not right, but I can't believe it would be that straight line. So I don't know. So as we close out the app, we have Navarro and Danvers going to find this wayward technician who may have hold more secrets to what was really going on at Salal. And so they go to this encampment and we ha- in the very, very first episode, we have that hunter hunting the caribou who, who are then spooked to commit mass suicide. And that same hunter is in this group of fishermen, whatever this group of people yep. are. First, mm. I thought that was going to be the technician. Like he was going to turn out that the, his identity was going to be the technician. But no, it's this other guy who's sitting in his shack who is clearly spooked when he hears that all of these scientists died. So he knows something more than he's saying. Yeah, I mean, just more mystery. When they first opened the door and there he is sitting in his rocking chair with the shop done, ready to go, he was very shocked to hear when they said, oh, all the scientists at Salal died. And the first thing he says is, even Lund? And he's really broken up about the fact that Lund is dead, doesn't give a shit about the rest. And that's when he gets really upset and he's sort of shocked into silence. And then he says, get out. So there's some connection between him and Lund. He doesn't know that Lund's about to die. Well, Navarro said, look, he's alive. He's in the hospital, but he's not doing well. And then, of course, by the end of the episode, he's uh, not doing well at all. But it's like, oh, why is he? What's the connection between him and Lund? I didn't think that was an accident. So anyway. we end this episode in the hospital where Lund has regained semi-consciousness and he's in, it's a very disturbing scene how his amputations, obviously, although I felt like they didn't have to focus on those amputations so much. It was a little bit excessive for me. <laughs> so that, is I that mean, the bit that you weren't happy with? That's not the bit. No, I, oh, the, okay. the, the cribbing directly from the exorcist. That's the bit oh, I wasn't okay. happy with. I mean, literally <laughs> she... He rises out of bed just like a Linda Blair and almost says the exact same line from the exorcist that your mother is in here with us, Damien, or whatever it is. Mm. It just seemed so like it just took me right out of it. It's like, okay, I mean, it could have been some other way of him acknowledging Navarro and maybe scaring her, but it was so similar. I mean... It had to be a callback to that, but it just was like, come on. That right. was so, for me, that was a very rare off note for right. this show. Okay. So you feel it crossed the line into parody rather than homage. Well, I think it was trying to borrowing it in a way yep. that was trying to be scary, but it didn't for me. It took okay. me out of it. There was one jarring point for me when they finish up talking to the to the guy out there on the ice to guck. And they get the call from Peter saying, oh, Lund is awake. So they jump in the car. Now they're in the middle of absolutely fucking nowhere. And what does Navarro do? She turns on the sirens and the lights. <laughs> like, okay, lights, I can understand, but sirens? Who are you trying to get out the way? I There's know. nobody thought, there. It's like, is this the like caribou? What I is that the, about? I thought the same thing. Mm. So there we well, are. Yeah, before we close, I thought 
couple of things. Number one, we see this whole episode is bookended by Annie at the front and Annie at the back. So there's Annie performing her doula slash midwife duties at the beginning, but at the end, after Peter has used his millennial magic powers to unlock the phone, which Dan just can't understand why he doesn't just do it on the spot. We see Annie in this place underground. She's recording herself on the phone. She's terrified. And then she drops the phone and we're hearing her screaming, screaming, screaming. Now, a couple of things. One, that phone was in Clark's trailer in town. So how did the phone get from Annie in this other location into Clark's trailer? That's where they picked it up from. How did, if that is where Annie died, how did she get from that location back into, but yeah, 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 back into the town. So I, I don't know. But the thing that struck me about it was that she was screaming, but there was no other noise. There wasn't any, there wasn't a human being going, I'm going to kill you, you bitch, or rah, rah, rah. It was dead silence apart from her just screaming. So it sort of hinted at something that was supernatural or a presence visually, but not audibly. So I was wondering kind of what that was about. We didn't acknowledge that when Lund does come to consciousness, he's saying she's awake and Danvers keeps trying to say, who is awake? Who is awake? And I don't Sounds like it's either Mother Earth is awake or some who's the goddess of war. No, no, no. Funny you should mention that because there's a fan theory out there that says that the she is actually not Annie, but is a god. A Ooh, okay. Her name is Sedna. She's a myth that is native to Alaska. And she's sort of abused by her family and her father. There's a couple of different tellings of what happens. But essentially, so one of them says that he takes her out to sea and throws her over the side of his kayak. And as she's clinging onto the side, he chops off three of her fingers. Now, we had some of these guys missing fingers. There's apparently another scene elsewhere that's something to do with the ice skating and something about five and three. So five fingers and three fingers or something. I don't know. But all of the versions of the myth are about missing fingers. So it remains to be... Sort of, but also you know, Shiva, the god Shiva is the god of destruction. I'm just wondering if that word, instead of we're thinking of that, they're saying she like S H E, but it's S H I. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so this Sedna is the god of the Inuit underworld. So mm. I'm going, oh, okay, maybe that's her. By the way, this episode really, because of the time we had with Danvers and Navarro, can we just say props to Kaylee Reese? Kaylee is the correct pronunciation. This is only her third her production ever. I was thinking right? that and when she, I was watching her. She yeah. is hitting it. She is hitting with a legend like Jodie Foster. And she's holding her just own. Hold, not even holding her own. She's like right there. So yeah. I think that, yeah, she's just been absolutely amazing. And I love the little reference when Navarro's in the ice hut with uh, Kabik. He says to her, okay, I'll tell you something, but you need to tell me something. And he says, quid pro quo. And so that's straight from Silence of the Lambs, right? Where, yeah. where she says, quid pro quo, Dr. Lactor. You know, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I've told you something about myself. Now you need to tell something to yeah. me. So, I know that people uh, have been remarking there was a joke about when, when Danvers asked Navarro, how does she relax? And she goes, oh, I just, basically she says, I Netflix and chill. She doesn't say I HBO yeah. and chill. Dean, <laughs> yeah. every time I sit down for this show, I'm like, you know what? I am just going to watch this from start to finish. I'm not going to pause. I want it to mm. wash over me because I'm so loving this season. 
And I always am stopping and writing like 10,000 notes. And I, I just want to <laughs> kind of just watch it without that. But I don't want to sort of miss anything that I'm thinking when I'm watching it. Uh, so what I do is I carve out enough time that I can play it through and I do not stop. Mm-hmm. I just watch it. Mm-hmm. I watch it for an hour and then I'll sit and I'll give it a bit of a break. Sometimes it's a couple of hours later. Sometimes it's overnight if I'm watching it late at night. And then the second time, yes, I stop and I yeah. just pause and take notes of time codes and other things. But the first time I just wanted to hit me as it would if I wasn't doing this pod. And you see things the second time. And then, of course, I read the recaps and watch the videos. Oh, shout out to a guy on YouTube called Pete Peppers on YouTube. It's spelled exactly as it sounds. He does. There are some good recaps, but boy, his recaps on this, and he just did Fargo as well, are really, really good. Yep. Shout out to Pete Peppers on YouTube. And thanks again to other people at Vulture, Rolling Stone, Esquire, New York Times, and other places for the cribbing and shameless lifting of notes from those. So we have to give credit to that, Dean. You don't have to do that. You can no, just it's true. Mine. It's true. Anyway. It's not all of some of it's mine, but some of it's lifted. So thank you, guys. And all of those links will be in the show notes, including Pete Peppers. Okay. Pete Pepper, shout out. We love everyone. Yeah. We love competition yeah. with everyone. But that's the thing. When you right. like a show, you I will listen to at least like 10 recap shows on something I'm really into. So anyway, we hope you've enjoyed spending your time with us reliving a True Detective episode three. We will be back for episode four. It's going too fast, Dean. It's going too fast. Mm, way too and fast. And maybe hopefully we can get somebody else from the show to come on. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Reach out. If you're if you have rolling on True Detective, come on over. Chat it up with us. Um, we'd love to have you. But for now, this is Dean and Lisa and Killer Casting signing out. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting out. <laughs>